Welcome to Season 7 of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, a fascinating journey into the lives of top sports personalities and their connections to Chicago. They reveal entertaining, memorable, and emotional stories many you've never heard before. I'm your host, George Hoffman, and please follow this podcast through our new partnership with Last Word on Sports. Just go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcast. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is proudly presented by Mr. Duct, Chicagoland's premier comprehensive air duct cleaning and ventilation for residential and commercial properties. They're upfront and honest. Find them on the web at mrductcleaning.com. This week we feature part two with a multi-talented voice of the Chicago White Sox and others, Jason Benetti. There's no way to say it without sounding egotistical, but I'll give it a run. Uh, I know I'm good at what I do because if I wasn't, there's no way anyone would put me on television. Besides being a consummate professional, Jason Benetti is quick-witted with a rather devilish sense of humor. Hard to imagine when you consider what he's had to endure since being diagnosed with cerebral palsy as a child. Lots of hospitals, lots of adversity, lots of people staring at you, but parents who have been an incredible support system. In part two of this engrossing and heartfelt podcast, Benetti digs deep into his dealings with CP and how he's managed to overcome much of that adversity. It's a portrait of a human being who has become one of the most admired and top-notch play-by-play voices in the business. Take me back to growing up in Homewood, Flossmoor, where you had a very challenging childhood. Actually, your birth was a very difficult one, involving your parents walking to a White Sox game. Yeah, I hadn't been born yet, and uh, they were on the way to a game at Old Comiskey, and my dad got hit by a falling piece of uh, concrete from a from a building on the way there. Mm. Uh, and so it's it's odd how life takes you, but I always am um, hesitant slash get the yips when I'm walking downtown and I see one of those signs that says "Beware of falling ice." And I wasn't even born, but, you know, you hear about it and and uh, it's terrifying. And my dad had some neck issues that came along with that and, you know, ended up being OK. But, yeah, it was uh, it's it's wild to hear about, because if that lands the wrong way, I you know, he's not here. And I, I my my parents went through a lot when I was sick and when I was growing up. And their beauty is that it wasn't the center of my universe. Whether that leads to me being naive about it when I'm young, maybe. But there was never any idea like, oh, you can't do this, but you can do this, but you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do like I played basketball with my friends growing up. We played football in the backyard. I was a big wrestling fan and my parents were terrified when I would like wrestle with my cousins and you know things like that because they didn't want me to snap uh in half right because I was like I'm like a hundred pounds now I was like seven pounds then uh yeah it was um it was not easy for them especially because when you when you see your kid growing up in a hospital a lot uh that's hard and you just kind of want to protect it and for me you know, I, I ended up making a lot of friends very early in life with like doctors and nurses and things like that. There was one there was one doctor that I had that did an amazing Donald Duck impression. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> and the things you remember, right? Like the yeah. little details you remember. I, I, uh, I remember this, the nurses would come in with like the giant basket of syringes and it was like time to draw blood. And every once in a while, my mom would just like send them away because why do we have to do that again? Right. But it was uh, difficult, but I also, you know, the, the great thing that comes from looking different is that at some point over the last 10 years, I kind of gained a, a pretty substantial belief in my work and the work that I put into myself. Uh, and there's no way to say it without sounding egotistical, but I'll give it a run. Uh, I know I'm good at what I do because if I wasn't, there's no way anyone would put me on television. For those people who do not know enough about cerebral palsy, please explain it because it's different in a lot of people. Yeah, and it's evolving still. Um, I was just at a Cerebral Palsy Foundation event right after the baseball season ended, and there's some more research that suggests that CP, which people thought for a long, long time, was just a lack of oxygen to the brain in formative stages of life and development. Uh, it's not always that. And so there's a developmental... Uh, set of research going on about the causes of CP and the underlying reasons for it. But yeah, I, I am truly one of the fortunate ones. And I, I, I don't mean to say that to say that people who have it worse off symptomatically are not capable of having fulfilling lives. I don't mean that in any way worse off is a value judgment on them. I just mean that I have speech patterns that sound like quote unquote normal people. Uh, I have the ability to get around without chronic pain. I have the ability to get around without the use of a wheelchair. I can walk, I can carry my bags, I can do all of those things. So I was pretty fortunate in that way because I've gotten to know some young people and some older people who use iPads to speak or mm. are nonverbal and they use their eye gaze technology, right? They, they have this technology with tablets now where you just stare at a word and then that word activates. And so... There, there are a lot of people who have uh, gravely different versions of CP. And, you know, I, I don't know that what I did was terribly honorable in that I just went into radio where I disappeared and was invisible to start out. But I think I needed that sort of catharsis of, hey, there is a place where people can hear me before they see me. Early on, when did you realize you were different from others? And how did you react to that as you were growing up? Or did you ever think to yourself you were different than others? Yeah, I became a psych major in college, but I was not before that. <laughs> uh, I was pretty naive to it at first. I think it went in stages. You know, at first it was like, well, you know, I, I know I have to wear these braces and I know you know, I wear casts after a surgery, but it was just kind of life, right? Like I didn't know the alternative. There was no internet for me to really know that kids didn't spend their summers in, you know, bed rehabbing or whatever it might be. And then in uh, middle school and high school, people would say stuff and I would get mad about it, but it's not like I lashed out. I just kind of kept it in. And, you know, there, there, there was always for me a little bit of a fear after I watched Little Miss Sunshine, the plot is there's this young lady who's a pudgy young lady and she's into beauty pageants. She's like 10 or 11. 
uh, and she wants to go to this beauty pageant and she qualifies because somebody had to drop out. It called the Little Miss Sunshine pageant. Her brother is older and wants to be a fighter pilot. And they convince him to go on this road trip to the beauty pageant in their VW bus uh, just by telling him that if he does, they'll let him go to flight school. And late in the movie, he's sitting in the back and he's doing a little like a travel magazine, little games in the back with the daughter. And she puts up to his face a little circle, one of those red, green colorblind circles and says, what number is this? And he goes, I don't, I don't know. And she's like, no, 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 there's a number in here. And he goes, I don't know. And he realizes that he's colorblind. And he finds out that you can't be a fighter pilot if you're colorblind. And he gets out of the bus and he goes running down the hill. And he he was, he had taken a vow of silence early in the movie. So he'd never spoken. And he runs out of the bus and goes screaming, Fah! right uh, down the hill. Uh, and that is the first word we hear from him in the movie. If I want to fly, I'll find a way to fly. You do what you love and fuck the rest. I became fearful at some point older in college and beyond that this career was going to be something like that in that I could get however good that I want to get. And somebody might just say, yeah, we're not going to put you on TV. And so I, I wanted to do everything I could to make sure that that wasn't going to happen. But, you know. I was angry about looking different and I was angry about the way that I got treated sometimes because it it just felt wrong to me. Like in college, I ended up being the sports director of WAER, the radio station at Syracuse. And the day I got the job, you know, that my friends were very excited and it was a wonderful thing and it was really cool. And then like later on in my tenure, I had given out some assignments to like, I would choose who went and did the Big East tournament and stuff like that. And on AOL Instant Messenger at the time, one of my cohorts, uh, one of my peers who didn't quite like me because I didn't give him a certain assignment, put up as an away message. Uh, at least he'll be a great story for somebody's magazine one day, uh, which is just a shot at me getting the job, I guess, because I walk funny. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But that stuff kind of sticks with you. Uh, and I will say, you know, I've gotten a little bit more graceful in in um, giving myself license to get frustrated sometimes, because when you walk the earth looking different every day, that kind of bubbles a little bit and it's frustrating. But I do. I, I will say, George, I I have derived a lot of joy and confidence from the idea that, you know, this career has worked out despite what I look like. When you said earlier that you would get angry, I, I think to myself, a lot of us, I was a little tiny kid growing up and sometimes you would be teased and sometimes you would be bullied. And I don't know if that happened to you, the bully part, but I also thought to myself, there had to be a point in time where you said to someone, enough is enough. Did that ever happen? Yeah, it happens a lot. Even now. Yeah, I mean, people say stuff to me that is like coded language for I think I can push you around. You know, years ago, I had somebody say they they challenged a decision maker and they said, well, you know, let's let's talk a little bit about why Jason isn't getting better games. And I hope it's not about 
a friend of mine said this, said, I hope it's not about his disability, you know, or what he looks like on camera. And the person who was the decision maker said back to that guy, oh, no, 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 we're very understanding of Jason's situation. The hell does that mean? Hmm. Understanding of my situation. I'm a sports announcer, right? Like I'm not some charity case. And so, you know, I, I don't think I, I've come to the realization that the perception I get from people in the world, it's just not really going to change, right? The people who know me know what my mind can do and know how I navigate the world. But I meet people over and over again every day who have never met somebody like me or never really met somebody with a disability. Yeah, It's, it's jarring sometimes. People mean very well generally, but I do think you know, there are some people and they know who they are, who uh, who see it as some sort of sign of weakness. And that's unacceptable to me. It sounds like because you were involved in psychology that you've managed to build a wall. Yeah, it's a wall and an understanding, though, I think, too. Right. Like, I think that's where my sense of humor comes in, because I do think it's really funny the reactions I get from people. Like I am a television announcer. I am a communicator by trade. But for people who don't know that, when I walk up to an airline counter and they say, hi, can I help? <laughs> it's just very uh, jarring. It's like a complete 180 from my actual job. Like I need I need my plumber to say that to me because I have no idea. <laughs> me too. <laughs> yeah, right. But to have a regular interaction, like that's right. my specialty. If you asked me to go skiing, I would need a very, very easy version of it. But I don't need to be talked to easily. So I, you know, most people mean very well. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean it doesn't get irritating for me to always have to go back to square one. It's interesting because when I was speaking to Lisa Byington for this podcast, she said, I don't want to be known as a female broadcaster. I want to be known as a broadcaster. And it gets her upset when people think she's good because she's a female. Yeah, I never wanted a job because I have a disability. But I also want there to be no barrier that people artificially create because I have a disability. And that is a tough needle to thread. I mean, it's really tough. So the, you know, the end run of all of this, George, is like the universal message that I try to impart to anybody who will listen is get really good at what you do and make them say yes. You know, I that's kind of what RJ Mitty did as an actor to end up on Breaking Bad. Yeah, I, I, I need the police. My dad, he, he, he put a knife on my mom. He, he attacked her. He, he's dangerous. I, I, I think he might have killed somebody. Like Marley Matlin has had a marvelous career and done that for people with disabilities. And, you know, one of the hardest parts, too, about having a disability, and I, I don't mean to complain. When I say hardest parts, it sounds like I'm saying, woe is me, because my life is very good. I, I'm not complaining at all. But one of the things that ends up getting repetitive is that people just always think you're gonna say yes to everything and be like cloyingly nice and childishly inspirational. And I don't have that in me 24 seven. I just don't. It's the, there's this uh, Netflix documentary 
called Crip Camp that came out a couple years ago. And it's about the people who ended up helping create the ADA through their protests and their activism. They grew up going to a camp in New York, in upstate New York, for people with disabilities. And there's this, all this original footage of these people at this camp, which is a pioneering camp. I mean, there was no place to go for people with disabilities. Sometimes not even the public school system would accept people with disabilities, depending on where you were. And so this documentary is all this original first person footage. And early in the documentary, one of the campers says, if you grow up with a disability and you have a passive personality, you're probably screwed. I thought it would be appropriate for you to hear those actual words from that man, Steve Hoffman, who suffered from cerebral palsy. If you're in you and I heard that and I have never felt more seen because there are some times where I just have to come with some version of conflict because people do not get what they're doing in how they interact with me. I, I get the sense, though, that 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 is more of the difficulty that you say of people interacting with you and not doing it maliciously. They just don't know. That's right. They, do, they don't know. But there are some people who've done it maliciously. Oh, I'll bet. And, and you know, I thought that would end in my adulthood. It has not, uh, I will say. And so I generally, this is going to be ultra philosophical, right? And we could discuss this uh, for a long time, but I generally think people are good and I generally want to smile throughout my day. But I've also realized that I do have to have fangs sometime to protect myself. When's the last time you had your air ducts cleaned? Here's the best solution, Mr. Duct, a name Chicagoland has trusted for over 20 years. They work on your furnaces, air conditioners, and do repairs, maintenance, and installations. In other words, they're your all-around company for air quality choice and more. Mr. Duct provides on-site commercial ventilation cleaning estimates. You'd be hard-pressed to find better. So give them a call at 888-4-MR-DUCT. That's 888-467-3828. And Mr. Duct is the right choice to clean your residential dryer vents. They do a full inspection to make sure your dryers are running properly. Mr. Duct works with schools, health facilities, and office buildings to make sure you're breathing clean air. Their testimonials are endless, and with good reason. So don't think twice when you're ready to work on air ducts, dry vents, and so much more. Just think Mr. Duct. 888 for Mr. Duct. That's 888-467-3828. And find them on the web at mrductcleaning.com. You give a lot of credit to your parents who basically said, do anything you want. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, there was never, oh, Jason, like, don't do, don't do that. You know, one one of the first Sox games we went to at the new ballpark, we sat two rows up from the top. And it's like, I, you know, I the, st the steepness of the stairs at that point was not easy for me. And I mm. remember like my dad giving me a piggyback ride on the way down when we went down. But 
they they just had a son, right? And they loved their son and they treated him like any other kid. And I will always appreciate that. Just like I will always appreciate the announcers in this industry who, when I sent them tapes when I was young, didn't say, hey, it's going to be really hard for you. Hey, like people are going to, th they just treated my work like the work and tried to make it better. I love a photograph of you in Chicago Magazine behind a toy microphone. You couldn't have been more than three years old. It's priceless. Super cute, right? I, uh, my, you know, I, <laughs> my wardrobe was questionable and the hair was questionable too. <laughs> like, we're not going to say that I was the king of the prom, but uh, yeah, I, it's funny, you know, thinking back, I, I, I did always like to laugh and to make people laugh. And I, I, uh, some people are critical of our telecasts because they think it veers too much into humor. And to those people, I say, I've had enough serious in my life. Like I had a bunch of surgeries as a kid. I was like up at four in the morning with my legs, uh, one direction and the other direction and pronated like crazy and all that stuff. Like I've had enough of that shit to be honest. So like, I'm going to have a good time. And if people don't want to have a good time watching baseball games, they've come to the wrong place. There is a 0% <laughs> chance this doesn't end up on awful announcing. 0% chance. That was literally what you did in the offseason? Yeah, that was one of them. I did a few. A welcome wagon was another <laughs> <Wait>. one. <laughs> you were both a prepaid funeral salesman and a welcome wagon representative? <laughs> Yeah, you didn't know if you were coming or going. That was the problem. <laughs> it's really incredibly funny hearing that. You were discussing Homewood Flossmoor and its radio department. And it's amazing to me, in this city who are members of the Chicago media. And I'm going to miss a few people here. Lawrence Holmes, Chuck Garfine, Paul Sullivan, Scott Merkin, that's an honor roll of people in the media from one school, a high school. Yeah, the reason is um, Bob Comstock and Megan Tipton, the two teachers there. They were so good at creating an atmosphere where you had to be detailed. And, and at the same time, we wanted to go there after school because it was fun to be there. And to them, and they get super embarrassed when we or I give them credit, but they're everything to me. I mean, they really were. It was a place where we could go and we could have standards, but we could also have a really good time. And uh, I will always be appreciative of it. Tell me how you went and fashioned a pretty good career at ESPN. You're starting to do a lot of games. And then you, like Adam Amin, went to Fox. I love it. I missed it in 2020 when we weren't traveling. And there's a piece of me who's kind of making up for lost time, I guess, right? If we're going to psychoanalyze it when you grow up and you're, uh, and again, it sounds woe is me, right? But it's just a reaction to that, right? You grow, grow up in hospital rooms and, and like my travel around the world was like watching Anthony Bourdain, right? And now I, I get a chance to go to all these places and I love it so much. And sports has become such a way for me to make friends and way for me to have value in society and what it has done for my life, I will always be grateful for. 
but I love going places. I love feeling the difference of where my mind goes when I'm in a certain city. Uh, just going somewhere else is inspiration for me. And I love it dearly. So, you know, part of the reason I keep the schedule I keep is because I know that one day it's not going to exist anymore. And I want to see as much of the world as possible. Because when your world shrinks, I think uh, you end up not having the most fulfilling experience that you can on this earth. What's a typical week like for you when you are on the road so much? Yeah, football season, you know, generally come home from a game Sunday morning. If we have a Saturday midday or Saturday night game, uh, come home Sunday and I kind of relax, reflect on the game, maybe watch a little bit of the game back, have dinner with a friend of mine, something like that. Uh, Monday, dive into the next game we have. We had a production meeting with our crew on Mondays this this week, uh, this year. And so you kind of get into that game and and really dive in. And, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday is just on and off prep. I kind of get to work on my own schedule. So I prep for a while and then I go watch a TV show for a while, go do some errands, some odds and ends, uh, see some friends. That's really when I get a chance to like my friends are really sick of me saying, how's Tuesday night? Because anybody who has kids is like, you're an idiot. What? <laughs> We can't do Tuesday night. We have like swimming practice. The kids have school tomorrow. So, uh, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday is the time that I catch up with people. Then Thursday, go to the next city, uh, have dinner with the crew. Friday, meetings with both teams generally. And then Saturday, do the game. Inbound pass comes to Arkansas. Bounce to Black. No wow. foul. And Arkansas survives. The defending champs do not. 72-71. Do you feel like you are an inspiration to others? It's such an interesting word because I am happy to help however I can. But the word inspiration sometimes gets tossed around like, um, like uh, when people say, oh, I'm sorry that happened, right? And they're not actually sorry. They just mean I wish that didn't happen. Inspiration is a word that I sometimes, I don't repel it, but I just implore people, if you're gonna say that I'm inspiring, uh, just be able to fill in the blank of the end of the sentence, I inspired you to do blank, right? Like if, if I inspired you, go hire somebody who looks different to do a game. If I inspired you, treat somebody with a little more respect. If I inspired you, like go read another book. If I inspired you, spend an extra 20 minutes on your craft. If I inspired you, go, uh, you know, stand up for yourself. Whatever it is, whatever the answer is to the end of the sentence there, I just want to make sure that people don't just say, oh, yeah, he inspired me. And then they like drive to Quiznos and do what they were going to do anyway. That <laughs> I'm so, thinking, I'm thinking more in terms of the fact that. It's like Lisa Byington that, you know, she she inspires both young women and she believes young men to do what she's doing. And I think for you, it's because you have this disability that it says to others who might have a disability, well, if he can do it, so can I. And I love that. And I think it's even more universal than that, right? Like if you're the small kid on the football team or you're the kid who's got a lisp or you're the kid who's like a little bit more obese than he needs to be or whatever, right? <clears throat> the 
the general idea to me is that uh, I hope when I'm done on this earth, people will say, oh, I, I should really not use one thing I've learned about somebody or the way they look as a barrier to something that has nothing to do with that detail. I'm on camera 40 seconds a game and I look fine. One of my eyes wanders, but like, it's, it's not even just about the disability to me, George. It's about all the kids who grow up feeling different. And then they either subordinate their personality or they get made fun of for what they are and they don't subordinate their personality or they give it away because it's just easier that way when you're younger to, to avoid ridicule, right? And I didn't have the choice to hide it because I walk like I walk. But it's so easy as a young performer, right? Actor, comic, musician, whatever it is, to try to blend in. I wanted for so long to be just like everybody else. And it's not really valuable in the end. It's not. And I know that sounds really basic, but it's true. I mean, it's the the way I've lived is realizing that if I am the version of myself that I trust most, that I care about most, rather than trying to blend in, it's either going to go well or it's not, but I'm going to feel more fulfilled. If you want to hear more guests on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, all you have to do is go to Last Word on Sports on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the many wonderful interviews we've done dating back to January of 2021. We resume with Jason Benetti on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. You're in your late 30s. I would imagine you are living in the moment, or are you? Do you ever think to yourself, what's next? Yeah. <laughs> uh, when when you grow up wondering like if you're going to get the chance, and I, I was confident that I was naive enough to feel like I was going to figure it out and somebody would hire me. But I'm always thinking what's next, not in job terms, but like, where's my mind going to go? What's the hobby that I'm going to do next? What, like, how can I activate my mind instead of how can I do something that I've done before? And so it's always, where's my mind going to go next? What am I going to see if I can have the chops to do within the context of I love my job? I mean, I love what I'm doing and I want to do it for a long, long time, but I also have a mind that wants to activate. And so that's that's kind of the push and pull. As we come near the end of this interview, I think of you and Stoney as being the anti cookie cutters of the industry, because I was very lucky to grow up with Harry and Jimmy, Harry Carey and Jimmy Pearsall. Now that's the other end of the spectrum, mind you. Here comes the throw, but now watch the runner. Boy, this is remarkable. Come on, get there. I what? got it. <laughs> I mean, that was the greatest twosome for four years or whatever 
I mean, it was amazing to live through that, to hear Harry one day, Sam Rosen is in our living room, okay? I was living with David Schuster. And, and I said, you got to listen to this, okay? So Harry's doing the game. They're in Anaheim, and there's this pause. And he goes, say, Jimmy. And Jimmy says, yeah, Harry. He says, have you taken your pills tonight? And I'm thinking to myself, and I'm looking at Sam, going, this is normal. This is what these guys do. This is not about baseball. And then things got to that point where, well, you heard some cookie cutters, but then you heard Ron Santo with Pat Hughes, and Ron was Ron. But I think of you and Steve Stone as being just a little bit different and reminding me of what the past can be. It's the present. That is so kind and generous of you to say. I mean, it really is. Because I... I... (laughs) I never had the choice of being like other people. <laughs> so I just, I've got to figure out how to do whatever I do. And I know that there are limits to the I factor of that. And it is the greatest part of the job that I get to work with somebody like Steve, who every night elevates me and elevates our show. And I would hope he would say that I do the same for him at points. On brushback pitches specifically, or swings that batters take that are broad swings that take them to the ground, the umpire, based on some clarifications from Major League Baseball, the umpire has the discretion to wave off the pitch clock or start it later on situations like that. And I think that's a good thing because you don't want to penalize these guys depending on what they're doing. So give them a little extra time. It's not that much different, and it's still about a half hour short. And getting to work with all these different people that I've worked with, Bill Walton and Dan Dockich and uh, Kelly Stoffer and Bill Polian and Robbie Hummel, who is just an absolute genius, and all of these people, uh, Bill Raftery last mm-hmm. night, to get to work with all these people and get to experience the feeling of what they do to take what I do and make it an us. And it is something that you just don't get to experience a whole lot when you grow up like I did, that real investment into you. Because a lot of people, when you're in your teenage years, are like scared to be the best friend of somebody who looks that different. There's a little social suicide built into that. And so uh, I don't mean to be maudlin, but I do think that's why, in part, I care about the depth of the relationship with the person next to me because I, I cherish it and I realize that it's a fleeting thing. But, uh, you know, I, I will tell you about 10 times in this conversation, uh, I have thought about my old AAA broadcast partner, Kevin Brown, who I mentioned before, mm-hmm. because we, for four years in minor league baseball, had this partnership where our two minds were just so symbiotic and so locked in on humor and on details. Do the raw math. Um, we're probably at you know, 480 games or something like that together in those four years. So naturally, you just start to sound like your broadcast partner. And the day he left, I felt the most ready to do the job that I had ever felt. Like these nearly four years had trained me exactly for this moment. But the reason I've thought of him in the conversation is the impression that he does of me generally includes very quickly me interrupting my own sentence and starting another sentence 
And if you go back in the interview, I think I've probably done it about 15 times where I'll start a sentence and then like go somewhere else because I just think everybody's following along <laughs> and he gets an absolute kick out of it. So I'm glad to put that out into the world because he laughs every time I do it <laughs> when we're talking. I asked this final question to all my guests. If not for sports broadcasting, what would you have been? Huh. Uh, uh, it depends on what time in life you're talking about. I, I might have been an attorney, but, you know, the first thing that that comes to mind is uh, maybe a writer. I've always loved words and I I, I have always uh, appreciated great writing and great language. And I think it comes back to like Carlin and Dennis Miller in his heyday and Robin Williams and all those people who used words to create joy in the world. And so I think uh, there's always been part of me that has kind of that tug to to be a writer. But I also think teacher would be on the list, too, because I, I, I know what has happened to me because I've run into some people who have helped me understand how to be better at this craft. So that's that's on the list, too. That's why I hesitated, because I, I don't know which one I would pick. I have to tell you what a great joy this has been. I have visited you and Stoney in the booth from time to time. Always got a kick out of it. You're the goods, and I hope to see you in the near future. Thank you, Jason Bonetti, for telling me a story I don't know. Thanks, George. My thanks to the incomparable Donald Duck, Little Miss Sunshine the Movie, Breaking Bad by Sony Pictures, Crip Camp from Netflix, Westwood One, NBC Sports Chicago, and Kevin Brown, the voice of the Orioles for those wonderful, wonderful highlights. And my thanks as always to the people behind the scenes that help make this wonderful podcast possible. TJ Reeves for putting us on the map, Will Hatzel for his crafty editing, Nick Tochi for our wonderful graphics, and to our new partner, Last Word on Sports. And to our presenting sponsor, Mr. Duct. You can find them at mrductcleaning.com. Tune in next week when we feature another intriguing guest on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'm George Hoffman, and that's all she wrote. <laughs>